Broadcast Network, AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads in over 150 countries and your number one source for after-show entertainment. AfterBuzz TV, the destination for TV superfans. Producing aftershows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows. Interviewing celebrities and showrunners. And bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E! Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin! Hello, AfterBuzzers. Welcome to an all-new edition of Spotlight On for creators and showrunners here at AfterBuzz TV. I'm your host, Sam Davidson. I have an awesome guest here with me. He is the writer, creator, producer of so many shows I love. He's worked on Secret Circle, Witches of East End, just finished up Second Chance on Fox, and he also just worked on Damien. And uh, he has a lot of interesting things coming up. This is Richard Hatem, you guys. Hello, how are you? I'm a big fan, and uh, just so all of you guys know, Richard's also a teacher, and I took his class last quarter at UCLA called The Anatomy of a Pilot. It's a very coveted class since he's a very, very busy man, and uh, he had so many amazing stories and insight into the industry, so I wanted to share it with all of you guys here. Uh, let's talk about how this all started, Richard. One of my favorite stories from you in class was about your first spec script. Oh, which one was this? This was the A-Team. Oh, okay, okay. That's Can we, what I thought. This yeah. is like, I just think this is such a fun, <laughs> before we get into like all the good stuff, this is an inspiring, fun story for people, you know, that are writers. And I just think it's a hilarious story in general. Well, you know, I started, this was in high school. Mm -hmm. So I was 16 years old. You know. And, um... And at some point it occurred to me, actually it was during a conversation with some friends that we were making, there was an old show called Three's Company. Do you remember that show? Of course I do, yeah. John Ritter, okay. So we were, you know, we're hanging around before German class sort of making fun of Three's Company. And I said, you know, I could literally write an episode of Three's Company. Like we've seen it enough, we know all the things that happen. I bet we, you know, I, it would take us like a day to figure out, here's the story, here's what happens. Because it was, you know, every character was very clearly defined. The kinds of stories they did were, you know, pretty traditional half hour, you mm -hmm. know, farce comedy stories. And, and the minute I said that, sort of at the same time, it occurred to me, wait a second. If I could write an episode of Three's Company, I could probably also write an episode of a show that I actually like. And... And sort of a lot of things sort of came together in my mind all at once. And and at the same time, I was thinking, well, you know, the A-Team is my favorite show. And I'm, I'm already interested in writing. And so all of this sort of it kind of built up in my mind. And I, I think now this was exactly, this is 1983, March of 83. So go back 34 years. Wow. Okay, I was 16. Mm-hmm. So, Thank you for telling us all your age. That's very that's my, honest and open of you. Yeah, my sneaky way of doing <laughs> it. Thank God I see showrunners older than me. So yes. as long as that's happening, I, I, I figure I'm okay. Anyway, um, so, so that's what I did. I started going home every day after school and going, okay, I know how the A-team works. I know how the episodes work. And I love thinking about the show, so now I'm going to think about my own episode. And I'll say this now because I think it... You know, for anyone out there who wants to be a writer, wants to work in television, you know, when you're writing an original pilot or when you're writing an episode of a show that you know and like, 
you're essentially this is glorified fan fiction. That's all it is. And and that's what I was doing back before it was called fan fiction, back before that existed. Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, well, I can do whatever I want with these characters. What do I want Hannibal to do? What do I want B.A. and Murdoch to do? What sort of adventure do I want to see them on? And so that's what I did. And except that I had every intention of selling this. And so to sort of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> paraphrase the story and not tell the longest version in the history of uh, all of our lives. Um, I, I I managed to get the script. Uh, I figured if I could get it to Stephen Cannell, who had uh, produced the show and wrote the show and had written other shows, The Rockford Files and Greatest American Hero, a lot of things that I liked. I figured if he read the script, he would get it. He would understand how much I loved it. And he would immediately go, you're brilliant. Quit high school and come work for television, which was, you know, my dream. So, well, how did you get in that? How did you get in that room exactly with him? Well, what I did was I, I knew an actor who uh, was doing singing telegrams. Yeah, you did something um, kind of illegal. It was a little it, bit it was borderline. Border, borderline. You know, look, the statute uh, statute of limitations, <laughs> I'm sure, has uh, run yeah. out. Um, and this was a guy, you know, he would dress up like Groucho Marx or, you know, Humphrey Bogart, and he'd go to parties. And you would hire these guys. Again, this is the 80s. This was a thing you did. And um, and it occurred to me this might be a way to do it. So I got my friend Larry, uh, and he and I were big Three Stooges fans. And we, this makes no sense. But we decided to be the Two Stooges, <laughs> Moe and Curly. And this was going to have to be good enough. And I literally called Stephen J. Cannell's secretary and said, hey, uh, so this is uh, Eastern Onion Singing Telegram Company, and uh, we've got uh, an anonymous singing telegram uh, for Stephen Cannell, and we're wondering when would be a good time to send these guys over. And his, uh, and his secretary was like, oh, he would love that. Uh, <laughs> let's see, let me check his schedule. Um, how about uh, Thursday at uh, 3 o'clock? And I'm thinking, let's see, my last period uh, lets out at 2.20, and I've got my mom's car on Thursday. Yeah, that should work out just fine. I just have to get down to Hollywood. Okay, perfect. So my buddy and I dressed up like Mo and Curly from the Three Stooges, and we drove down to Stephen J. Cannell Productions, which was a big building on Hollywood Boulevard at the corner of La Brea. And... Um, there we were, you know, and I, I had my script with me. So we went up the elevators, went, you know, walk into this hallway, beautifully decorated, totally silent. All you can hear is the air conditioner. And the secretary looks at us and goes, oh, you must be the guys. Come on in. And so we go and we sit down and we're just sitting there in the silence. And then I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Wait a second. Is this illegal? I mean, I think it's okay. I'm just going to wait until I see the biggest producer of television uh, in 1983, and uh, hand him a script. That's okay, right? So this was, uh, this was my plan. So there we sat, and pretty soon she said, okay, come on up. Uh, it's t- uh, you know, he's ready. So she leads us over to these big oak doors, and she pushes the doors open, and we step into this beautifully appointed office with Emmys all over the place, and no one's in the room. So we look at each other, and she's like, oh, this way and leads us through that room through another set of double doors. We go through those. An even bigger room, but no one's in that room either. Now we go to a third set of doors. She pushes them open, and we walk into yet a larger conference room with an enormous table, and there's 
15 people sitting around the table. They're clearly having some sort of a meeting. And I glance over really quick, and I recognize Stephen Cannell sitting at the end because I know what he looks like because at the end of all of his shows, he's typing and does his thing, and then he pulls the piece of paper out and it flies away. And you away. were his stalker. Well, I think that goes without saying. I think we've made that very clear. So um, so Larry backs into the room, and I'm doing Mo. I'm like, you know, get in there, you idiot, and I'm slapping at his face, and he's backing up. And there's this big golden telescope mounted by the windows. And it's this giant floor-to-ceiling window that looks out across Los Angeles. In fact, it looks like that opening shot from the A-Team title uh, credit mm -hmm. sequence. So um, Larry backs into the telescope, and it starts to fall. And, and this is all happening in extreme slow motion. And it starts to fall, and Larry, he's a big guy, huge guy. And he spins around and catches it and sets it back up. Okay, so uh, it was all on purpose, obviously. Yeah, clearly, just to you know, yeah, raise the uh, tension level a little higher. All these guys at the table are staring at us like, "What the hell is happening?" And they've all got that nervous smile on their face, like, "Well, somebody must know what's happening here. Yeah, this must be all right. We're just none of us did this, right?" So I chase Larry around, and we walk down to the end of the table, and I'm like, "All right, where's Stephen Cannell? Is there a Stephen Cannell in the room?" And uh, we walk right up to him, and he's there sort of smiling like, well, this is highly irregular. What's happening here? So finally we go up there, and we do a bit of a routine, but finally I just turn to him and I say, Mr. Cannell, I'm a big fan of yours. And you're, you know, I've watched the Rockford Files and you know, the, the, the Greatest American Hero, and, but my favorite show was The A-Team. And, and then I start reaching into my coat, you know, back where you would keep a gun, and I and I pull out my sweat-soaked script. Your butt sweat-soaked yeah. script, yeah. Yeah, really, really professional. <laughs> and I'm like, it would mean everything to me if you would read this. Um, and and meanwhile, his secretary is standing at the other end of the table, and she realizes, oh, this is not legit. <laughs> this is just some fucked-up writer who really wants to get in here. And and she's like, oh. Oh my goodness, Mr. Kennel, I'm very, very sorry. I had no idea this was happening. And and uh, and God bless Stephen Kennel. He's like, don't worry, it's okay. They conned us. We've been conned. Yeah. And it was so perfect. He recognized that it was a moment from one of his shows, which was my whole goal to begin with. That so. just gave me chills. That's kind of cool, though. I, I'm 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 a lamo, but. Uh... Like I said, I'm a big fan of yours, but that's so I freaking love that story. Well, it's funny. Okay, so to, to wrap it up, you know, we give him the script. He says, "Sure, we'll take a look at it," and 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 we leave. And I think, well, this is it. <laughs> you know, my career has now begun. It's in the bag. It's in the bag. You know, and um, you will be shocked, and thank God you're sitting down, uh, to hear that they did not buy that script. And that that was March of 1983, and I wrote script after script after script for the A-Team, and Riptide, and Hardcastle and McCormick, and Remington Steel, and Simon and Simon, and Cheers, and Newhart, and Family Ties, and all these shows, and none of them sold. And I didn't sell anything until March of 1993. So it took 10 years of just writing like crazy, everything, features, scripts, all kinds of things. And... and if, if if this story sort of sums up anything, it's that, you know, when you're young and you really want to get into the industry and you and you have the people you idolize, you know, nowadays it might be Joss Whedon or, you know, uh, Vince Gilligan or, you know, whoever's doing your favorite show, Shonda Rhimes. Mm -hmm. And 
you really do think that's the person I got to get to. If I can just get to that person, then they'll see me and the connection will be made. And 30 years later, 35 years later, I can tell you that's never the way it works. Um, rarely, I don't know anyone, in fact, who started their writing career by hooking up with someone who was already famous and successful, which is bizarre because you think it must have happened to somebody, and yet I don't think I've heard it with anybody. It's always, I was 23 and I was just out of college and my buddy was working as an assistant in a production company and somebody read my script and then that got me a manager and then this and there's the bit by bit incremental moves then you're an assistant for a while and then this happens and then you meet someone else and then it's always these very slow incremental steps up usually by being an assistant Mm -hmm. at some point in a production company or for a tv show for a producer in a writer's room that seems to be the way people are making it nowadays. So yeah. as it turns out, uh, as exciting as that was, it did not lead to the fame and fortune I was hoping for. Well, and I think it's a great story for people to know, too, because obviously it didn't make you give up at all. You kept on going. You kept on oh, writing. Yeah. And, you know, then you did end up writing a version of an A-Team movie, right? Well, yeah, I mean, that's really the crazy part. I mean, a- after I had sold a couple of scripts and, and was just starting my career uh, in writing features, this is probably 1996 now, so 13 years later, um, I heard through my agent that they were uh, the, the, that Universal was going to produce uh, an A-Team movie, and they were looking for writers. And I'm like, oh my God, please get me into that meeting. And so they did, and I actually found myself in that exact same room 13 years later with Stephen Cannell sitting across from me, and uh, he had no idea, and I didn't bring it up. <laughs> I wish you did. That would have been amazing. I know. And everyone says that. And yet here's the thing. I really wanted him to see me as a writer, not a psychopath. Yeah. After he bought it, then you could have told him. (laughs) I know. I was going to. My my idea was I'll tell him at the premiere. Yeah. uh, Which, again, you'll be shocked to hear, didn't happen. I got to write the first A-Team movie that ever got written. This is in 1996. Now, this is not the one they eventually produced 14 years later. By then, 30 different writers had written 30 different versions. But the very first one I got to write, I got to work with with Stephen Cannell. I got to, I mean, I got to spend time with him. And and that was a huge, huge gift. And, um, you know, obviously it would have been the greatest thing ever if they made that version, but it didn't work out. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, uh, in a way that, you know, that, that particular dream of meeting him as a writer, having him read my work and say, Hey, this is really good. And you know, here's how to make it better. That was huge. Yeah. And then I I love that story so much just because it comes full circle. Something I didn't get to ask you in class, we didn't get to talk about that much. And I just want to kind of quickly talk about it. It's the Mothman Prophecies. It's actually one of my favorite scary movies. That movie terrified me. I remember where I was when I watched it for the first time. I was at the Marriott Marquis in New York City on vacation with my mom and my brother. And we ordered it. It had just come out in the theaters. And my brother and I like pooped our pants. We... (laughs) I didn't sleep, like, the entire weekend. How how did that, you know, it's based on a semi-true story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of very similar to TV versions of stuff that you're doing now. You know, you have this kind of dark, ominous thing going on with a lot of your shows. So how did that come to be in the first place? Well, it, it was weird because I was... Um 
You know, the, fir the first thing that I co-wrote that sold was Dark Territory that I co-wrote with Matt Reeves, who's a mm -hmm. big director now. He did Cloverfield, and he's doing the Planet of the Apes movies. And um, But this was just a few years after college. So we wrote that. It sold. And at, at which point it was sort of looked at as, oh, this is a guy who writes action. So the next script that I wrote that did not get made was sort of an action thriller. Um, but it was enough to get me meetings, and then I wrote The A-Team. And so at that point, it's like, okay, this guy writes action, he does TV show adaptations, that's his thing. But at the same time I was doing this, which I enjoyed writing that kind of thing, but at the same time, you know, I've always been into ghosts and communicating with the dead and UFOs and Bigfoot and all that stuff. So... Um, so that was sort of on my mind for some reason. I had been reading, even at that time, a lot of books. And, and I sort of felt like, you know, is there a way to tell a story of someone who has a, a supernatural uh, event, an encounter, some sort of supernatural experience, but it leaves them with, <clears throat> excuse me, more questions than answers? Because in real life, if you read those books, people who, who have abduction experiences, people who who live in houses that are haunted. You know, these things never then turn into, oh, the ghost is telling me that there's a body buried somewhere and we end up solving a crime together. Yeah. And then the ghost goes off and we sort of spiritually shake hands and it all it's was like, for a reason. like, thanks, dude. Bye. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, is there a way to tell a story that really just sort of gets into that feeling of, I had a normal life, Something weird started to happen. I tried to figure it out, tried to make sense of it, and all I learned is the world is a much stranger place than I thought. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, is there a way to tell a story like that that would still be somewhat satisfying? And it was tough because when, you know, I, okay, so I, I found the book, um, contacted the author, wrote him a check, optioned the book, developed a screenplay, then tried to sell it. All that happened in the course of like nine months. Mm -hmm. When I tried to sell the script, which is very, very similar, I mean, almost exactly the movie, uh, it, it was tough because people looked at it and they were like, well, I don't get it. Like, when does he fight the Mothman? You know, when does it become that? And I'm so glad that never happened. That's part of what made it oh, so yeah. creepy. Yeah. And, and, and it could have so easily become that. It could have been, I mean, through other writers who rewrote it, it could have been that. But... Um, Ultimately, when the movie was made, the director, Mark Pellington, he, he, he read 12 different versions by a million different writers and then literally went back to my first draft and just went, whatever this one was, that's the movie I want to make. And that was the draft that I sold. And then it changed very little after that. So what you're seeing in the movie is literally 5% off of my first draft. So the problem people had with it, though, again, trying to sell it to the big studios was, I just don't get it. Mm -hmm. Is it a horror movie? Is it a drama? There's no monster, but it's supposed to be scary. There's no real ghost. It's not exactly a haunting. What the hell is it? So they all passed. And it was a few months down the line after literally everybody in town had passed that the people at Lakeshore Entertainment read it and said, oh, we totally get this. This is about... You know, this is about sort of reaching through that veil and wondering what it is you're touching. Mm -hmm. And 
And they loved it. They kind of loved it just the way it was. And, and it was their idea to bring in Mark Pellington, and it was their idea to bring in Richard Gere. And it took a couple of years to get there, but um, but they made a beautiful movie. Yeah, and if uh, you guys haven't seen it, Richard Gere, Deborah Messing, like, really, really cool movie. You should check it out. Which I think, okay, so what year was that, that, that movie? Uh, that came out in 2002. And then what year was Miracles? That was 2003. Yeah. That happened right, right on the heels. And that makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of very similar themes yeah. in Miracles as in the Mothman Prophecies. And Miracles, you know, was on for one season. It kind of, you know, we got a tweet before we came in, which was awesome. <laughs> there's people that have seen this show. It's a really cool show. Show and it, you know, got canceled too soon, like many of them do. But it's very interesting, and I had actually never seen it or heard of it until I was in your class, and I was my mind was blown. It was oh, really right. cool. So, can you kind of tell us about like what that show was about and what it was, how it came to be? Well, the heart of the show, the, the way it came to be, actually, was th- there was an existing feature script that was owned by Touchstone uh, called Miracles, which was sort of uh, kind of a romantic drama, and. And, and the, the main character investigated miracles, but it never really got to like uh, a level of supernatural intrigue. It was more about sort of someone discovering the miracles of the heart. And it was beautifully written by Michael Petroni. It was really a great script. In fact, I thought that when it was being sent to me, it was for a rewrite. And because that happens when you're writing features, you'll just get scripts and you read them and you assume, oh, so someone has this and wants another draft. And I was like, well, this seems great. I don't really know what I would do to change it. So when I met with Touchstone, they said, oh, no, no, this is not to be done as a feature. We just want to take the idea of a guy who investigates miracles and do a TV show and make it sort of like a uh, sort of an X-Files with heart. And I was like, oh, I get it. Okay, that's interesting. Maybe I can do that. So we we had a meeting, uh, and it went through all the steps that developing a TV show goes through. You meet with the development executives at the studio. You meet with the people at the network. You pitch different versions. They give you their input. You make revisions, and you just keep going. So it, it went from, you know, Touchstone was ABC Studios at that point. So we sold it to ABC. Um, did a few drafts. This was all during, this is like during 9-11. Mm-hmm. This is like happening concurrently. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and um, which I think was also one of the reasons they liked it because I think it addressed sort of that existential fear that people, you know, experience all the time, but especially then. That's sort of like, you know, what the hell is going on in this world and what does it all mean? So Yeah, and there were so many conspiracy theories at that time. That's so fast because I never put those pieces together, you know, about 9-11. And then a lot of people were had a conspiracy theories about religion with the attacks. And oh, yeah. there's all these weird photos that looked like the devil is in smoke, like when those... When the when the twin towers were going down, so that's really interesting, and it reminds me of the pilot of the show, which uh, yeah. I really liked. Well, one of their ideas was let's let's constantly have this feeling that there's something brewing in the background, no matter what the what the upfront story is. Let's constantly have a feeling of generalized paranoia, which Matt Reeves, who my buddy, who he and I co-wrote Dark Territory, he directed the pilot, so he was able to capture that. That's definitely paranoia. And rising danger and doom is definitely in his wheelhouse. And and so we, that was definitely, it was a big part of the pilot. And we always kind of implied that, 
oh yeah, there's there's a larger story to be told here. But when the show was picked up and we were actually writing the episodes, we were very much interested in just telling that weekly episode and telling it as well as we could. And there was some overarching elements, but not a lot. We just came up with 12 stories that we thought were fascinating. And we got very little pushback from the network. Again, it was this amazing experience where we kind of went in and said, here are the episodes. Here's what we want to tell. Here's what it's going to be about. And it, there's not going to be a ton of car chases. You know, this is going to be, you know somewhat interior and and contemplative and existential and they said great do it you know as long as it's a story that you know we can follow and that's interesting and and they were i thought yeah. and uh, and so we did it and so it was it was a great experience in that it was my first and i was able to create a show and produce it and write it in a way that meant something to me and that and that i can stand back at and say oh i'm really proud of that it didn't it never got to a point of, well, yeah, the pilot was good, and then it kind of went off the rails, and it was interfered with, and then it turned into something else. Mm-hmm. So so I consider that one, you know, a, a stroke of luck. Yeah, and now, how many episodes did it end up being? 13. 13 pilot plus 12. Plus 12, and so, you know, people, the only place you can really find is box sets on Amazon kind of thing, right? Uh, definitely, and, you yeah. know, I, I recommend you uh, run right out and do that. Just, I actually, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie, Richard. I think that I, I said that during class, but like I've been on a bit of an Amazon binge and I've been using my mom's Prime account with my own credit card, of course, oh, but, well, you perfect. know, free shipping. So good. you're good. Yeah, I Go probably won't sleep for the next month. So thank you in advance for that. After that happened, you know, and the show got canceled, but people still really like are obsessed with that show. It's kind of a random small thing. What did you do after that show? What was the next thing that you started working on? Well, the I, I actually went back to features for a while uh-huh. and wrote um, wrote some things that were did not go forward. Um, and and then after about a year of that, my agents were like, you know what, TV has a short memory, and you know people did like miracles, but if if you stay out of the TV game too long, it's going to be harder and harder to get back in. So. I think this was a full year later. They said, "Why don't you just go out there, pitch something new, or just you know staff up? Just you know get out there, work. You haven't really done a lot of TV. You've done mostly features. Just work more in television and figure out how it's you know how it's really done. Because I'd had you know, I was technically creator showrunner, but it was 13 episodes, so there was a lot more to be learned. So I did. So I actually went on a show called True Calling." Mm-hmm. And worked with people who are my friends to this day. Um, Zach Estrin, who was actually a writer on Miracles. Uh, John Feldman, Scott Shepard, Jane Espenson, Doris Egan, Kareen Rosenthal, Rob Doherty. I mean, just a, you know, a, almost everyone has done other things that, you know, your fans and fans of this show would know them from. Rob Doherty went on to create Elementary. Doris is shooting a pilot right now for CW. Jane Espenson's done everything. Yeah. Um, so, so it was it was a, a really great group of people, and and that was really fun. And that seemed like, oh, this is great. I can just be here with people that I like, writing a show that's got tons of emotion and it's really fun. Uh, I'll be here for five years, and then this was second season. Fox canceled it before it premiered. 
for our second season. They'd already done a year of it. I This was like, I came in, I'm just like, okay, I'll be on year two of the show, and that's when I'll start. We had produced six episodes, and Fox was like, you know what, we're actually, um, we changed our mind. We don't need this show so much, because we literally just bought 25 reality show premises uh. that we're immediately going to develop, and we're going to try to get a full schedule of reality. And uh, so we're really cutting back on hour-long scripted. This is in 2004, when reality TV was at its height. Mm -hmm. and, um, and just like that, it was over. So I literally was there for four months. And then I went on to a show called The Inside, and then I worked on Supernatural, and then, and then, and then, and yeah. then, I mean, just, Grimm, you know, Once Upon a Time. Grimm, uh, the Dead Zone, The Lost Room. I mean, it, it's literally just been, you know, one to the next to the next, um, which, which, which is strange because there are some people who will be on, you know, um, without a trace for six years, mm -hmm. and um, which is awesome, but I got to tell you, yeah, there are certain shows, especially the ones I created, that I wish had gone longer. But there is something kind of fun about just, you know, new group of people, new show. Okay, what's this one about? Let's do this. See, that's so much fun. And in class, you know, you kind of drew out like a, a diagram for us that it's like, okay, consulting producer, you know, super, all oh, yeah. these all these things. And it, it's fascinating to know how many people are really in the mix in these rooms on these shows and that they kind of come in and out. I mean, I think what you did 21 episodes or something of Supernatural. Yeah, I was on there for the first half of the first season. Mm -hmm. um, I was on Grimm for a year and a half. So yeah. How does that work? You know, they just because you you had a deal, right? Or you know, with uh, was it Fox or? I've never had an overall deal. Okay, it's always just been show to show. Um, which again, for a long time, I'm like, God, all my friends are getting deals. They've got these two year deals with Warner Brothers or with Fox or something, and and they they, they know exactly how much money they're going to make every week. And there was a long time where I was like, God, I wish I could get one of those. And then, and then I started talking to them about it. And then I learned that there's a downside, of course, to everything. And the downside to having a deal is when you've got that deal, you're always working, especially now. Maybe 10, 12 years ago, that wasn't the case. But now, if you have an overall deal and you're working on a show, the minute you're not working on that show, they put you on another show. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have some input, but sometimes they're just like, no, we really need someone over on that show. Yeah. And, and often you're walking into a room where people are sort of like, and why are you here? Or you might be working on a show that you really aren't that into, um, but you are you're 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 sort of a utility player being placed wherever they need you. And again, that can be great, but it can also get a little wearing. So yeah. I've had the advantage of being able to pretty much pick and choose the shows that I've worked on, and in the meantime, write pilots that sometimes get shot and sometimes get uh, picked up and sometimes don't. Well, can we uh, can we talk about Heavenly? Oh, please. So, guys, this is a pilot that was, was it before the CW? Was it the WB at the time? No, it was a CW. It was a CW. Yeah. This was 2011. This wasn't yeah, that long ago. Yeah, it wasn't ago. that long ago, and it got picked up. It was supposed to get picked up. It was supposed to get picked up. It was shot as a pilot, but it was not picked up to series. Right. It was the same year as Secret Circle. Exactly. And The Ringer, which, um, you right, know, right, right, right. was a big part of it. It was a really, really fun show about, you know, an angel that kind of falls from heaven to be, you know, have a 
have a real life as a human and fall in love and that kind of stuff. I know, I know. It was it was it was pretty gooey. I friggin' loved it. I it love was... <laughs> I love gooey. That's I, I love gooey too. That's my stuff. And it was funny. It was able it was because aside from the genre element, I mean it was this show was not Dominion. Mm-hmm. This literally was a guy it, it, it's more like, you know, the bishop's wife. It's more like, you know, it, it's a guy who's never been a human being. He's always been an angel. And he, he, he is allowed the opportunity to manifest in the body of a human being and experience life as a human being because he is in love with this woman whose life he has saved. And he gets to learn how to be human. And what I loved about it, I just come off um, working on The Gates which was a difficult show. And you created that show, Yeah, right? I was co-creator yeah. of that show. And it was... The show came out great. There are a lot of fans, and mm-hmm. the show deserves every fan it's got. But producing that show was extremely difficult. And I had just finished up. It had been... God, it feels like it had been, well, more than a year. I guess it had been from the time we wrote the pilot, which was a year before. But anyway... It was exhausting, and I didn't want to do anything. I wanted to curl up in a room and cry for three months. That was my plan. <laughs> and um, and then my friend, who was also a producer named Ross Feynman, came. Uh, did he come to the class and talk to you guys, or was that the maybe that was the previous year? I don't think he did. I don't but think that, Ross came to. That I, I know the name, just yeah. you know, from the name. Well, he he came up and he said, "All right, I've talked to Tom Sherman at CW, and uh, they want a spiritual procedural." And I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, exactly. We got to figure it out. Meet me at Moe's for breakfast, and uh, we'll we'll figure it out. I'm like, oh my god. And Ross and I have this deal where, you know, we just meet over a series of breakfasts and come up with ideas for shows, and then go try to sell them. We've done it several times. And he's now producing. Well, he's one of the producers on Damien, and he's also producing a new show uh, that will be on Amazon. Um, pretty soon. Uh, cool. I, I I really want to tell you all about it, but it's not my show, so I don't think I can. But anyway, it's a cool show. Anyway, we sat down and over the course of a few breakfasts came up with this idea. But what appealed to me the most about it was it's not about the smartest guy in the room. It's about the dumbest guy in the room. Okay, it's it, because so many shows, Elementary and Blacklist and all these, you know, Scorpion, there's all these shows about people that are ridiculously smart. They're like borderline geniuses. And that's incredibly difficult to write every week. It really is very difficult because you have to be the genius. And then you've got to come up with a problem that requires a genius. So now you've got to have bad guys that are also pretty smart. And they've got to be smart enough so that it looks like your heroes are super, super smart when they outsmart them. So it's just... Smart on top of smart on top of smart on top of smart. And it can, that that can, for a guy like me, be difficult. <laughs> I understand. I don't think I could do it either. Yeah. But when it's a show about a guy who's trying, who, th- you know, he's he sort of existed spiritually for thousands of years. And he thinks he knows what he's doing, but he doesn't understand how people work. And that to me is very interesting. Because that's what you and I try to figure out every day. Mm-hmm. What's going on with my husband, wife, boyfriend, boss, brother, parent, child, whatever? What are they doing? And how do I work within this situation to make things come out right? And the other nice thing was that, again, I made it clear up front, 
this guy's going to get it wrong. He's not going to be the angel who walks into a room and goes, oh, I know what to do. I'm going to do a little of my, you know, angel magic, and <laughs> this is going to work out just fine. He tries to do that, and it ends up making things a million times worse. So th- this was about a person who has never eaten food, who's never gotten drunk, who's never kissed a girl, who's never done all those great things that when you when you look back to when you're young, you're like, oh my God, that was such an amazing feeling when the world was new and every experience was the first time and therefore it felt a million times better and a million times worse. Let me write about that character. And so we did. And so you saw the pilot. Mm-hmm. So what'd you think? I was a big fan. Uh, I liked it a lot. And, you know, it. and I think that that year, though, was a pretty good year for TV. And, oh, yeah. you know, and that's part of probably the reason why it didn't end up getting on. If this would have been, you know, a year or two later when TV kind of was like on an off year, not as much good new <laughs> stuff coming out, uh, it probably would have gone through and it deserved to go through. And... Well, I can tell you specifically, CW um, has gone through various phases of development. For those of you who don't know, every network, every year, has a list of things that they are looking for. You know, the, these are the, you know, it's like, well, a year from now, what should we have on our network? Should it be a, you know, do we need more medical dramas? Do we need more cop shows? Do we want to move in a more genre direction? Do we need something that'll work well with our existing hits? So... Grey's Anatomy is doing well. What could follow Grey's Anatomy? Oh, scandal. How to get away with murder. You know, this is the way they're thinking. And for a long time, CW was thinking, we've got these sort of youth-oriented shows like 90210 that are that are serialized. And then they had Vampire Diaries, which mm-hmm. was genre, but also heavily serialized. And they were like, well, we really need to nail the procedural. We need we need our version of a cop show or a lawyer show or even a doctor show. And then they had Heart of Dixie for a while. Mm-hmm. And now they've got iZombie. Yeah, iZombie is their kind of like procedural. Yeah. Yeah. And very much in that, I mean, again, a very, you know, a charming, fun tone. So this is what they were looking for. But um, right now, iZombie is sort of an outlier on the network. And what it's known for is... The stuff that's a bit more heavily tilted toward genre, either in the supernatural realm or in the comic book realm. Yeah. So that's that's where they're going. Less and less are they looking for a cop show, even if it's young, good-looking cops. Um, they're not really looking for lawyer shows because it's like, well, we've got our cop show, except the cops are superheroes. Mm-hmm. And... You know, lawyer shows, eh, you know, unless we can figure out a way to, you know, have that live in the landscape that we've created, we're not sure if we need it. Right. So that's where they are as of now, yeah. I think. And, you know, it ended up kind of being that The Ringer had to take the place of uh, Heavenly. Un- well, yeah. Yeah, cause, and that's that's why it didn't go forward, because, uh, you know, Sarah Michelle, it was supposed to be at CBS, I think. Right, right, right. Right, and then it ended up moving, and they had to move things around. And it it's a, it was a sad story in class. I was like, damn, that sucks. You, and we can't even see this pilot anywhere else And the fact that you brought it in and showed it to us. And it was, it was really fun, and it was a great piece of work. And it's, you know, after that, it's like, did you think to yourself, damn, they're the ones that brought me this idea, kind of, like, told me to come up with it. We yeah. did, and it was really good. Now we work so hard. What am I? Can I can't do anything with it now? It sucks. Well, yeah, it, it, it does suck. And um, but here's the thing: 
while we were making it, um, a woman named Mimi Leader directed it, and and the cast was amazing uh, that you saw. And you know, we we all sort of openly talked about it. We're like, wow, you know, this show is not like a lot of shows on TV right now. It's it's pretty it's sentimental. It's you know, big emotion. Uh, the, the comedy is coming from a you know kind of a goofy place, you know. But but we all cared about the show, and we all sort of said, look, if this doesn't go, I just don't know. I just don't know what to do. I don't I don't, I don't know if TV is a place that you know that we can work because then it's just going to be okay. That didn't work. Now uh, go work on Criminal Minds and uh, let's figure out who's hacking up uh, human beings. So it, it was. We all were sort of at that place of like, this is our last, you know, our last hope for something like this. And and then it didn't get picked up. And, you know, we were crushed, you know, as, as everyone is when their pilot doesn't get picked up. Um, and then a few days later, it was like, hey, um, do you want to come work on Secret Circle? What are you going to say? You know, uh, no, I think I'll give up my career now. You you very quickly get to a place if you want a career in television of being able to shake things off fast and get on the next bus. And, um, and Andrew Miller had created secret circle and I had met with him and he was great. And the show sounded really fun. And I said, it was fun. I, I really liked that show. Yeah. So, so it was, it was a great place to go. And, and, it, it, I mean, again, the the lesson learned is you you really do have to pick yourself up really quick and be ready to move right along into the next thing because you you don't know you might be on a show for five years or you may go from show to show, and the ones you love are the ones that may not live and the ones you don't love may live. So you don't know, but you know best to just be willing to meet with a new group and. Basically, I mean, you're just walking into a room going, hey, what game are you guys playing? Ah, oh, it sounds like fun. Okay, let's play that. Yeah, like, hey, can I play? Yeah, that's... literally. Mm-hmm. It really is. It really is like kids on a playground. I, that's how you feel. Emotionally, that is how it feels. Well, and you have to, too. You know, have to have a good personality, be nice to people. I always say when people come to Hollywood and they're asking me for advice, I'm like, why are you asking me? But, and I just say, I don't know, be nice. Like, that's one of the most important things. You yeah. just have to be nice, have fun with people, create real relationships that aren't, like, bullshit. Well, the first, and, and there's a really good reason you do it. Because if you do that, if you have the capacity to do it, you will then have a good life, no matter what you're doing. Do yeah. that, by the way, do that no matter what you're doing. You work in a real estate office, do that. Yeah, just you work be nice. In Tony Roma's. You know? Like you did, you just, did. Yeah, <laughs> walk in, be grateful you've got the job and try to be pleasant and it'll actually be a better experience. But especially in TV, if you're working in a writer's room and you typically are, um, and then you're working with the studio and the network and you're working with the cast and the department heads and the production crew. Yeah, be a pleasant person. Um, because if you can't do that, then you'd better be hugely successful and continue to be hugely successful. Because then people will work with you no matter how horrible you are. If you've got a successful show on the air, they will always be willing to work with you. But if you're not constantly cranking out hit shows, um, the least you can do is be pleasant. The assumption is you're already you already possess a certain level of of uh, talent or at least ability to write a script. Uh, uh, beyond that, try not to make everyone's day worse. Yeah, exactly. And just as a kind of, 
I don't know. I think it's an interesting idea that Secret Circle went for the whole first season. It was 22 episodes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah. And then it got canceled on a cliffhanger. And how, why does, why do those things happen? Why do networks let those things happen? And Secret Circle had so many big people behind it, you know? Well, there's, you know, I mean, shows ending on cliffhangers, there used to be this feeling that if you, if you, you know, build a cliffhanger, a really big cliffhanger into your last episode, well, then they can't cancel you. Well, of course. That's never been true. (laughs) Um, The show was canceled, I think, because of ratings. If there was another reason, I don't know what that reason is. If there, if it got more complicated, if there were, you know, behind closed doors, people figuring out studio deals, and I don't know. My my understanding was at the time, for whatever reason, those ratings were not considered enough to keep it on the air. So that's my takeaway. why do they allow the cliffhangers? Because they don't know. Yeah. You know, as as the final episode of Secret Circle is being written and filmed, the network is still waiting for their pilots to come in. They don't know. The pilots may not be so great. They may order one less. Or they don't know how the other shows are doing. And they really just wait until May. Now, sometimes shows get renewed early. But if, if there's even a bit of a question mark... Then you're all sitting around in May, and people are, you know, at the network are having big meetings in New York, you know, just before the upfronts, deciding, okay, what do we bring back? Which pilots do we order? And and then, and what's our schedule? Frankly, what's our schedule? What are the shows we have? What's going to couple with those shows in such a way that people might build a night around watching our shows? Right. And you think, well, people just DVR stuff. But no, people still look at that. It's like, well, how well did Grey's Anatomy do? And then how much did Scandal hold from that hour? And how much did How to Get Away with Murder uh, hold the audience from Scandal? Uh, that This is still a big deal. Yeah, it's it's a lot of numbers, and it's kind of a crapshoot sometimes in your career. Kind of, You know, you've worked on some amazing shows, and it's great. But now you have three Three show. Well, Second Chance, did that just finish? Second Chance will uh, conclude uh, its first season next uh, Friday night. This coming Friday night will be its the last episode, the 11th episode. Sure. So that that's great. It's almost... It's almost over on TV, and it's it's been a fun ride. I, I know, oh, yeah, yeah it, it changed a lot from beginning to end, and that's what networks do. Yeah, Second Chance was a, was a great example of um, network participation. Uh, they participated in that show heavily. Uh, and, and, you know, they do it because they're protecting an investment and they, you know, I mean, every network obviously has a feeling that they know what's going to work best on their network. And that same level of participation went into Minority Report and Rosewood and Lucifer and Scream Queens. Some of those shows are coming back. Some aren't. But you you got to give it your best shot. And nowadays the feeling is... Well, let's be more involved rather than less involved. And so they were. And and I, I will say to his credit, Rand Ravitch, who created the show, was extremely adept at, at sort of protecting the internal landscape of the show and saying, look, you know, you, you can change a detail here. Okay, you want to change a storyline or, 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 or have the show work in this direction and be more procedural and less serialized. Whatever you want, that's fine. I still know who these characters are and what their relationships are. And ultimately, that's all anyone's going to be tuning in for. 
you know, yeah, you want an exciting story, but really you want to see those people interacting with each other. And he did a masterful job of protecting that through thick and thin. And, um, and the people who are, you know, who are the fans of the show, that's what they talk about. Those are the things they love. Oh my God, what's going on with Marion Otto? What's going on with Jimmy Pritchard? And, you know, and of course, who's going to finally kiss? <laughs> so I'm, I was hoping for Jimmy and Otto, but uh, that didn't happen. It didn't happen. No. Well, you know, we also have Damien, which yeah, yeah, yeah. is super <laughs> exciting. I How many, is it three weeks it's been on? Three episodes? Uh, episodes? Tonight will be the third episode. Yeah, tonight will be the third episode. It's on A&E. Yeah. It's really good. What are... What is how is it being received right now? Um, it's being received really well. In fact, I think it's the only show that I'm aware of that I've worked on where, with when the, when the second episode premiered, um, reviewers sort of came back around and said, "Oh, you know, we like this even better than the first one." You know, it's sort of like uh, you know, typically you expect the pilot to be the best episode, and then the rest of the series, even if it's 500 episodes, to sort of go down from there with a couple of spikes. But uh, no, they were like, oh, second episode, even better than the first one. And then uh, third one is tonight, uh, and we'll go. I wrote episode six, so um, hopefully the trend will continue. But the people are really liking it, and they're really into it. They really, they love the tone, they love the cast, they love Barbara Hershey and Bradley James. Uh, The number of tweets I've seen about Bradley James' ass, I gotta tell you, that's the star of the show, I think, in in a lot of ways. It's being called out. Maybe all your other shows could have just been saved if, like, there was more butts. You know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's part of what people are tuning in for. Well, there's another show that I want to get a little preview into because I'm a big Freeform fan, and we have the show coming out this summer, and... What is, what is it called again? I, Dead of Summer. Dead of Summer. Yeah. We are having a blast doing this. This is, um, in fact, right after this, I'm, I'm heading back over to the office. Um, this is a 10-episode uh, first season, uh, Dead of Summer. It's going to be on Freeform. And it's created by um, Eddie Kitsis and Adam Horowitz, the two guys who created Once Upon a Time, and Ian Goldberg, who is a writer of feature films, who also worked on Once Upon a Time. So the three of them got together, and um, this is this is sort of their their love song to their camp days. These are guys who went to camp, yeah. um, especially Adam and Eddie. Uh, <laughs> they grew up in the Midwest. They have. I did too. We're big camp people. Are you? So you went. You did this. I. I'm, this, I me, didn't really fun. like it. I'm not gonna lie. I, I lied about liking it. Uh, and then I convinced my parents to send me on teen tours instead and use that money so I could like travel the world and stay in hostels. And I did a whole like petition and business plan. I was like, I'm not going back there. So a hostel would be better than yeah. a cabin. Yeah, I, I don't know woods. why. It wasn't really, uh, it wasn't my thing, but I went to a lot of camps and saw oh a lot. And I think it's a fun, and it's like, it kind of seems like a dark version of wet, hot American summer, but not with the weird adults, <laughs> you know, like still it being is. kids. You know, that's exactly what it is. I, I would, oddly enough, I lean it more toward wet, hot American summer than Friday the 13th, because I think people hear... Oh, it's it's dead of summer and it takes place at a camp. Okay, it's Friday the Thirteenth, and it really isn't. It's it's more wet, hot American summer meets The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, you know these these sort of you know young and and it's also it takes place in 1989, 
which didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, well, why does it take place in 1989? And then I, <laughs> it slowly dawned on me, that's when Adam and Eddie were going to camp. So all the music, <laughs> all the pop cultural references, all the movies, that's where it lives. And for them, it's like, let's write about what it was like to go to those camps and fall in love and, you know, survive outdoors and do all that stuff. But let's add a genre twist. Let's say, what if the camp is haunted, basically? What if the lake is alive? What if there's things in the woods? What if the whole landscape is sort of this, you know, Pandora's box of of weirdness and lurking ghosts. And I'm like, okay, that's fantastic, of course. You're like, I am so in right now. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and and they also, it it shares with Once Upon a Time and Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, which I worked on, um, the, um, the structural conceit of the flashback. So every episode... One of our counselors, um, we will get to know more of through a flashback and getting to learn about uh, what what was going on just pretty much just before they came to camp, and gives us a whole new light on who they are. And you know, suffice to say, they all have secrets. And th- what's nice about the flashback format is that it it sort of forces episodes to be written from a character point of view and from a theme point of view. Because the the flashback, which is typically four or five or six scenes, is a little mini story. And so you tell that story, and then the way that story ends and the way it moves along influences the way you're looking at the modern day story. So you're constantly going, okay, that's what they did in the past, but here's what they're struggling with right now. And how are these sort of going to meet up and, and bounce off each other toward the end of the episode? Which I think is... I mean, again, I don't know how it is for a viewer. I think it's fun. You know, they certainly have a million fans. But as a writer, this is a great way to approach. No other show does it. Uh, Only their shows do this this sort of uh, structure. And it's so fun. It, it, It makes breaking the stories a joy. Because, again, you're not just sitting there going... Okay, what's the criminal doing? Okay, and who's using a computer to? Fi- There's no computers. It's 1989. No one, no one's walking around with a laptop or a cell phone. In fact, that's the hardest thing about writing the show is is getting out of the habit of going. Oh well, they just call up and oh wait, no, they don't just call up. Yeah. They actually have to either use a landline or walk down the street. So anyway, uh, it, it's been super fun. They're just shooting today is the first day of production. So That's so exciting. And it's just pretty genius that I can't believe no one's ever done this before to do it as a summer show. You know, yeah. perfect little 10 episodes. It's going to be so much fun for viewers to watch during the summer. Well, not only that, but then you can go back. You know, uh, the camp will be the consistent part. And uh, every year of the show will be a different year at that camp. So we can go back in previous years. Years, we can go forward. You can go in any direction and tell a story about those exact same characters at an older age or a younger age or a whole different group of characters. So we can it ge- it gives us a lot of um, a lot of elbow room for storytelling. Absolutely, there's a lot you can do with it. One last question I have for you is: There's kind of this new genre I feel like that has been developed, which is a comedy horror kind of thing, and it sounds like this new freeform show could be on that same realm. You know, we have Scream Queens, which is a four, you know, it's, it's an hour show. 
and but it's it's funny and it's listed as a comedy and it, as as a writer and for other writers that are out there watching you know how do you kind of categorize what what you're gonna do because everyone says are you a you know a comedy writer are you a drama writer you kind of have to pick but it seems that they're being meshed together in well, some things they, they are meshed together and and the fact of the matter is that you know you, if you're doing a half hour show it's like the the opposite genre is the salt on the caramel. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you're doing, remember when Modern Family started? Yeah. Incredibly funny show that always did a little sentimental thing at the end, especially in its first maybe one or two seasons, a kind of a sentimental thematic wrap up that made you cry. Mm-hmm. And that was the salt. It's like, oh, you know, we get both. And for me, the best hour-long dramas are the ones that have comedy in them, too. And they're not just, you know, down-the-middle melodrama or just, you know, flat-out thriller that never crack a smile. You want those things. You want that other thing to give you... It immediately makes the show feel more real. And it it also... You kind of cover your bases. And, and, And there's a real value to this. I mean, I could talk about this forever. But suffice to say that... Anytime you're doing an hour-long drama, the more comedy you can bring in, the better off you are. If you're stating up front, oh, we're a comedy drama, that's actually troublesome. Mm-hmm. If you state up front, oh, we're a comedy horror show, that's also a problem. You have to be Ryan Murphy to basically get away with it. Well, yeah, or to be given the opportunity to do it in the first place, mm-hmm. because then you're sort of like, when you say both, it sounds like it's 50-50, and then people start saying, well, but what is it, is it, one of those things has to be 51, and one of those things has to be 49, so which is it? At the end of the day, should I be laughing, or should I be scared? The number of successful comedy horror movies, you can count on one hand. Mostly you can count on one finger, and you can call that finger an American werewolf in London, and that's about it, okay? And then if you're me, you add in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, and maybe... Um, you know, maybe Ghostbusters, you know, which was never really scary unless yeah. you're eight years old, you know, but otherwise it's, you know, that's pretty much relying well, on Would you comedy. consider Scream just a full-on horror? Well, the, the difference there is uh, Scream was working in the world of satire, and I think Scream Queens uh, might be in that world, too. I haven't seen it, so I don't mm-hmm. want to... I can't really talk about it, but it feels like it's a bit more oh, campy, a bit more tongue-in-cheek. Is very, that right? very, very much so. And, you know, there's also Scream, the TV show that's on MTV right. that is in that same vein. Yeah, you know, and you can do that, but it's weird. It's like the comedy, when I was a teenager, we provided the comedy. We would go see Friday the 13th, and we understood, like, <laughs> we would laugh. Yeah. yeah. Not because we didn't think it was scary, we would laugh because we did think it was scary, but we also thought it was somewhat absurd, mm-hmm. especially when the angle you're approaching your horror from is, you know, psychopathic murderers. Um, I, I, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but on Scream Queens, there's no vampires, there's no, no. werewolves, there's no supernatural element. It's just, um, it's it's blood. It's like, yeah. oh my God, anyone could get killed at any moment. Okay, you, you know... I think a typical reaction toward that is, okay, let's laugh. And the best horror directors build in laughs to relieve tension. 
But again, if that's your stated goal, that is such a narrow target to hit that you, you've really got to hit it and you've got to hit it every time. So, you know, again, having not seen the show, I don't know if they're hitting it. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you've seen it. And... Yes, I've seen it. And, you know, it's gotten picked up for a second season. I'm a fan. And, you know, I'm also a fan of, like, the Scream series that's on MTV. Right. And they're both... It, it's funny, you know, it, when things come out in the same year, because you know that the networks aren't planning it together at all. Right. Like, just like Damien and Lucifer. Right. right it's right, right. like, oh, it's weird theme of the devil this year. Okay, cool. Yeah. It all just kind of happens at the same time. Yeah, it's, you know, there, it happens a lot. You yeah. Know, it's the zeitgeist. People are reading the same articles in the same magazines. They're hearing the same podcasts. You know, everyone's hearing cereal at the same time and going, oh, my God, wait a second, that's great. You know, yeah. guaranteed there were a million pilots last year that were somewhat based on cereal. Um, <laughs> no one is stealing from anyone. Nobody needs to. These ideas are, are never... Nothing on television, frankly, is idea dependent. It's execution dependent. Right. You know, it's not like, oh my God, that's the great, we've never heard that idea before. Typically, it's like, huh, a female lawyer. Okay, sounds great. Who's writing it? And that's the decision. Yeah. It's like, oh, David Kelly's doing it. Great. Done. Sold. Uh, the guy down the street I've never heard of, we'll have to read it. Yeah. We'll have to figure it out. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming in. This was so much fun. Oh, you're so welcome. I know that, you know, you probably are going to just kind of start to rack up all those shows. And I can't I can't wait to see, like, the big one that breaks through that you create. And there's, like, ten seasons. Because I, I know it's going to happen. I know. It's one of those things is, like, be careful what you wish for. I keep wishing for that, you know, and thinking, oh, my God, if I could just get that, that's the holy grail. And then, you know, like, once a year I'll have dinner with Rob Doherty. And he's like, yeah, 22 more episodes of Elementary. I just have to be unbelievably, brilliantly genius 22 more times. Oh, my God. I think I'm going to go out of my mind. So I, I, I see that there's a downside, but still, wouldn't be bad. Yeah, it would not be bad at all. For all the fans out there, where can they find you on social media so they can follow you and all your crazy, amazing shenanigans? Um, I will tell you, you can find me on Facebook, uh, but I, I don't, I'm not there a ton. I'm on Twitter a lot. And um, so look for me there. And I, I'm at Richard Hadam, right? Uh, Adam, yes. And, Adam. Uh, and it's, uh, Adam. yeah, it's just my name. Uh, look me up. You'll find me there and you'll hear about, you'll, you'll relentlessly hear about every show I'm working on. Yes, which is amazing. You guys can find me, Sam Davidson, at SamD43 on Twitter and Instagram, SamDavidsonEntertainment.com. Please comment. Let us know what you thought about this interview. And uh, I cannot wait to see what's going on, Richard. Oh, thank you so much for of having course. me. Of course. Thanks, guys. See you next time. From executive producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz you later. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 